Well, good morning. And welcome to the services at La Prada Drive Church of Christ. We want to welcome you to the church service this morning. Especially want to say thank you to any visitors we may have with us in attendance this morning. We pray and hope that you found a church that's loving and welcoming and a church that, above all, seeks to worship God in the way that He wants to be worshipped. We're grateful that you're here this morning. I want to start out by showing you some statistics in the world today that I find to be absolutely disgusting that have sparked my interest in relevance to our chosen topic of the morning. 81% of Americans believe that adultery is a sin. 74% of Americans believe racism is a sin. 65% believe that using hard drugs such as LSD, heroin, and cocaine is a sin. 63% believe that not giving back extra change that a cashier gives you is a sin. 56% believe abortion is a sin. 52% believe falsely reporting your taxes is a sin. 52% believe homosexuality is a sin. 50% believe engaging in pornography is a sin. 47% believe gossip is a sin. 46 believe swearing is a sin. 43% believe sex outside of marriage is a sin. 41% believe smoking marijuana is a sin. 40% believe getting drunk is a sin. And then 30% believe that gambling is a sin. This is from the Ellison Research Foundation. And we can go on and on and on with more statistics of Americans and their views of sin and whether or not it is a sin or whether it is not a sin. So, of course, I, I read this research and I, I find them to be disturbing. I'm, I'm invested. I want to read the rest of this article. And what I came to, came to find out is that the populations surveyed for the study were not just your average Americans. In fact, the main majority of these, over 70% of these of the people surveyed, profess to be a practicing Christian of some form or fashion. Now, as to what denomination, belief system, ideology they had, that's up for interpretation. But the point is, brothers and sisters, we as a society, and not just a worldly society, but the very churches we attend on a weekly basis have a sin problem of disastrous proportions. Sin has been downgraded in today's society from something that has eternal consequence into something that, quite frankly, doesn't even have an effect on our walk with Christ. Society today has proven time and time again its ability to, to twist minds, to push ideas, push tolerance in some cases, and change an entire world's idea of what is morally acceptable and what is and what is not sin. Brethren, the truth is the same societal norms that we are discussing right now are not going to get any better. The temptations and sins that you struggle with right now will be a hundred times easier for your kids to commit than you can right now. And it's only getting worse day after day. This morning, we're going to talk about the idea of breaking the process or the cycle of sin and the important command that we have to be a peculiar people, a people that are set apart, that are different from the world, a people that resist sin, and a people that try to maintain that pure heart that Anthony talked about a few weeks ago. We're going to begin our discussion this morning in the book of James in chapter 1. Verses will be on the screen for your convenience this morning. If you'd like to follow along in the Bible, feel free to do so. But James chapter 1, starting in verse 12, says this. It says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, 
which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when that lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. So to understand this morning how how sin works in our life and how the process of sin occurs, we first need to understand some truths and some misconceptions and be reminded of a few things about sin in our lives. The first thing we need to be reminded of is that sin itself is not temptation. And I'll say that again. Temptation itself is not sin. James says in chapter 1 that every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. If you remember from the Gospels, Jesus himself was tempted, right? So the question remains, is temptation itself sin? There are a couple ways to address this idea this morning, but in the context of James, we'll use his description of the sin process. James describes this pathway of sin and that we're drawn away of our own lust. That personal lust entices us. That lust is conceived, becoming sin, and then sin brings with it death. To make this extremely simple, let's talk about a chocolate chip cookie. Now, I don't claim to be a cook this morning, but I'll do my best. You take all your mixes, you add the flour, you add the the butter, the sugar, and the chocolate chips, and you place those in the oven and you bake them. Then at the end, we have this really nice gooey chocolate chip cookie, right? So what we just described is a process. Ingredients are added, the ingredients are acted upon, and the end result of that is a chocolate chip cookie. So let's ask the fundamental question then. Are chocolate chips alone considered the chocolate chip cookie? Well, you say, Ethan, of of course not. Chocolate chips alone can't be the cookie. And that's exactly the method that James gives us here in chapter 1. He gives us this process that shows how temptation draws us away of our own desires. And when those desires and that temptation is acted upon, it becomes sin. Using the cookie analogy, just as chocolate chips cannot become cookies unless mixed and baked, temptation cannot become sin unless acted upon by something. That something or that force we're talking about is you conceiving your own lust. Secondly, we need to understand that temptation is not from God. And if you know a little bit about your Bible, you may be thinking, well, hold on just a minute. God tempted Abraham in Genesis. But in this lies a misunderstanding of wording. You see, temptation in the sense of leading to sin is a mechanism that leads us to commit evil. And the wording in the KJV for God tempting Abraham is not tempting him to do evil, but rather a testing of Abraham's faith. You see, God is not a tempter. In fact, we see in James chapter 1 that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Simply meaning God would not generate or place something in your life that would cause you to do evil. We also see in the same passage that James says, let no man say that he is tempted of God. So who is placing the temptation in your life? That leads us to the third thing we'll talk about before we get started this morning, is that Satan uses temptation and sin to separate you from God. It is his goal to cause you to stumble. It is his wish that you disobey God, which is why he tempts you day in 
and day out. But folks, we need to also understand that Satan is not God. He does not possess the same omnipotence as God. He is not all-knowing, and his power is limited. That means he cannot read your mind. But do not be deceived into thinking he can't reach you. Satan is a genius. He seems to always have those traps kind of set right where we can't avoid them. Right where they always make us stumble, and he's good at it too. He's the tempter. So now that we've refreshed our minds about sin and some common truths, let's talk about now how to overcome sin or break the process of sin that James describes in chapter 1. Take a look back at the passage found in James chapter 1. It says in verse 14, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. The Greek word there for enticed is Strong's 1185 and describes that of being caught by bait. If you've ever hunted or fished before, the idea of catching by bait is probably quite familiar to you. For us duck hunters in the crowd, we, we do a lot of duck calling to try and bring the ducks in. Dad will hit one type of call, I'll do a different type of call, and Jeff will move the ducks around using a jerk string to try and draw these ducks in. And unfortunately, each type of cadence in our duck calls can mean very different things. Some of the calls may mean, hey, come on in, there's food over here, there's corn on the ground, right? Some may mean there's a maid in the area. And some, unfortunately, feel like most of the time the ones we hit are the ones that tell them to run away, right? (laughs) But those ducks only come in when they hear the call that they want to hear. And brethren, we are the exact same way. We're only tempted by things and led to sin by the things that we want to see, by the things that bring our personal lives pleasure. And those things can be very different for each one of us. The things that tempt me may not tempt my grandmother. The things that tempt Anna Grace may not tempt Tim Hutchison. But I want you to notice what James says, and it's vitally important to understand when it comes to fighting sin, is that temptation is when you're drawn away and enticed by what? Not by something random, not by something that would never interest me, but by my own lust and by my own desires. The reality is sin starts in your mind and it starts with your thinking. Your deepest desires, your lust, the things you don't ever want to tell anyone anyone else about, those start in your mind. I'm reminded of a story of the Israelites shortly after the battle of Jericho. God commands in chapter 6 of Joshua that the men of Israel essentially take no spoils from the victory at Jericho due to its city being kind of devoted to destruction or being accursed. But a man named Achan had other plans and decided to take spoils despite the Lord's command. So he didn't want to do what the Lord said, and he sinned, right? But I want us to read Achan's response to Joshua as he's kind of called out about this sin. In Joshua chapter 7 and verse 20, it says, And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonian garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight, then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. You see, Achan said it of his sin that he saw the spoils, he coveted them, and then he took them. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? There was something there that he saw that he liked, 
and he was tempted to sin. You see, the battle against that sin started in Achan's mind. He saw and he coveted. And the battle with sin in your life is no different today. You name a sin and you can trace it back to a thought. To be able to steal something, you've got to want what you're stealing first to conceive the temptation. Take King David, adultery with Bathsheba. He sees her on the roof over there. The thought creeps into his mind. What if, right? Same is true with sin in today's world. It starts with your thinking and it starts in your mind. The I wonders. The thoughts that we try to fight but can't seem to overcome. So how do we combat that? If we know the sin process starts in our mind when we are drawn away of our own lust, how do we stop our minds from longing to conceive that lust? And I believe the answer is very simple, but hard to do. Paul says in the book of Romans in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove that which is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Paul describes an idea here in his letter to the Christians in Rome. He says, don't conform to the world. Don't be trapped in sin. Don't be trapped and held back by your own lust. But on the contrary, renew your mind. You ever wonder why he says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by renewing your mind? Because it starts with your thinking. But what does it mean to renew our mind? Everyone here knows I'm a little bit of a science geek. I don't try to hide that very often. So we'll turn to science this morning and talk about the human mind. You see, our mind is made up of millions and billions of synapses that connect themselves together with things called neurons. And every time that synapse is activated, it fires and triggers a thought, sometimes a memory, maybe sometimes a desire. Those synapses are built up over years and years of memory, recollection with sin. Maybe it's a desire and action in doing that sin. But what I find to be absolutely fascinating about the human mind is that the only way to forget that memory or forget that pathway is to literally cut that pathway in half and break it down and replace it with another pathway. You cut it in half, so when there's a chance that that memory or that thought, whatever it is, can be recalled, when that synapse fires, it can't be completed because the pathway is no longer there. So when we talk about the idea of sin and temptation in our lives, maybe it's something that triggers that synapse to fire, that pathway is activated and it comes alive. So when Paul tells us to renew our minds... I don't think it's much of a coincidence, but rather a starting point in aligning our lives as followers of Christ and listening to the creator of the human mind. You see, to renew means to realign or completely change for the better in the Greek. We have got to cut those synapses in half, and this may look entirely different for each one of us. Practical application of this, some sins are addictive, Meaning it takes a total process of reworking our mind to battle not only the sin we're dealing with, but also an addiction. Maybe it's something like gossip, where we need to change the way we think and find the positive in someone. Maybe we need to find three things we're thankful for about that person before we open our mouth. Maybe it's trouble with pornography, and we need to flee and put the phone away. 
Maybe we even go to the extreme and get a flip phone, something that can't access the internet wherever we are. Whatever we need to do, we need to renew our minds and focus on the things above because our souls depend on it and it starts with our thinking. The second thing we can notice from this process that James lays out is that there is a moment of decision in our fight with sin. There's a brief moment between where you've been tempted by your own desires and the moment in which those desires conceive. Take, for example, the idea of something simple. Let's talk about lying for a minute. People lie all the time for numerous amounts of reasons, maybe to build themselves up, tear someone else down, get out of trouble, whatever the case is. So let's say you're having a conversation and you have a thought that crosses your mind that, man, I could lie and make myself look really good right now. Whatever the lie is, it's going to elevate my status. It's going to make me feel better about myself. Maybe my family members, my friends will like me better because of that lie. At that point, brethren, the temptation to lie, the temptation to commit sin is there. The thought is in your mind. Remember, it starts with your thinking. And now you have a choice to make inside your own mind. It's a war against yourself. You have a decision in front of you of whether or not you're going to fulfill your flesh to gain that momentary pleasure if you're going to stand down, put your foot down, and fight the sin. I want to read you a passage this morning that I believe perfectly puts that moment, that decision into perspective and gives us insight into the wisdom of God. In his letter to the Corinthians in chapter 10, Paul says this, He says, now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be idolaters as as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happen unto them for examples, and they were written for our admonition unto whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not let you suffer to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. This passage teaches us as believers to learn from the Israelites of old. Paul teaches the Corinthian church to observe and glean from their examples of sin and failure. Their lust of evil things, idolatry, tempting God, murmur, all those things we just discussed. Paul then explains to the Corinthian Christians to take heed. In other words, be aware, notice these things unless you fall. And folks, the truth is we need to be very aware of what our personal desires and lust are and the sins that pull us away in our lives, the things that entice us, because if we aren't, we will fall. But Paul lays out an interesting idea found at the end of this passage that I kind of want to break down for a minute. He says, we will not be tempted beyond that which we are able, and with temptation, God will make a way for escape. There's two things we need to understand from this. Number one, your God is an amazing God. He's a just God, and he's a faithful God. In the context of that verse, that means if you're being tempted with something, the truth is it is not too strong for you to endure. And you are strong enough to bear and battle that sin. 
And number two, God isn't unaware of our failures and he's not unaware of our weaknesses either. So with every temptation, God makes a way for us to escape. You see, the idea fits perfectly into the message James is presenting us with this process of sin. We've been tempted and pulled away of our own lust. The temptation's there. It's right in front of us. And we have an option to battle that temptation or we have an option to commit sin. Or we can find the way of escape. And God makes the way to escape. The word escape there is the Greek word ekbasis, which is Strong's 1545. The word simply means to aggress. The roots of that word in the Greek mean to exit away from when put together. To explain this in a sense that paints a picture of how God makes this process work, let's take a minute to examine this word. Ekbasis is on, a, on occasion used to describe that of a mountain pass in older Greek literature. A mountain pass. Now, what in the world does that have to do with sin? If you'll indulge me for a moment, I want to paint a picture in your mind. I want you to imagine you're a soldier fighting a war up in the mountains of Afghanistan or Normandy or Greece or whatever military time frame picture you want to put together in your mind. You've been fighting up this mountain or around this mountain day after day after day. You've made some ground. You've found yourself winning the battle. You make your way closer to the enemy and you see him in front of you. You're looking towards it. It's getting close to the end. You begin to head towards them, but suddenly you hear something behind you and something to your left. And you're surrounded by the enemy on all sides and you've got a mountain to your right. You're stuck. You can't move. You don't know what to do. You don't know where to go. Death faces you in front and death faces you behind. You're lost. You're hopeless. But you see a little crevice in the mountain to your right. A little mountain pass that can get you away from the enemy. That grace that allows you a way to escape. And that's exactly how God works in our lives with sin. You see, when you've been tempted, you have a choice. Do I run towards the evil? Do I take the route that leads to death? Do I commit the sin? Do I look for the mountain pass? Do I find the way to escape? And the choice is yours. And folks, the bad thing about mountain passes, sometimes they're rocky. Sometimes they're scary. To be honest, sometimes the mountain pass is the harder route to take than just going around. And unfortunately, sometimes fighting the sin in our life, finding the route of escape is a whole lot harder than simply committing the sin, isn't it? But it's what we're commanded to do. Find the route of escape, and it requires that we look for it. Because free will allows you to make that choice, whether or not you're going to sin or fight the sin. But brethren, there is always a way out. Put the phone down. Kids, say you get drug tested and you can't take the drug. Whatever it is, whatever the way of escape you need to find, we need to do it because if you don't, it will cause you to fall. But sometimes our way of escape may be something that requires us to run away entirely. Think of how many times that's mentioned in the New Testament to the church at Corinth and to Timothy and all these other Christians. Paul says to, uh, to the church at Corinth, he says, Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. He tells Timothy, But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. 
He tells the church at Corinth again to flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. He tells Timothy to flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. When you're tempted and we're stuck in the middle ground of that battle, sometimes the way of escape is to simply just run around and run away. Think of Joseph with Potiphar's wife. Genesis 39, it says, And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business, and there was none of the men of the house there within. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. You better believe the temptation was there. The thought at least crossed Joseph's mind. But Joseph didn't allow that temptation to be conceived. How? He found the way of escape, and he fled. This isn't on the screen, but I'm reminded of Romans chapter 13, where Paul says to make no provision for the flesh so that you may gratify its desires. Brethren, to break the process of sin, to break that cycle, we've got to be willing, searching, and seeking for the way of escape. Taking the first opportunity we can to flee temptation, because the truth is your flesh wants you to sin. Your flesh and your heart has desires that it wants quenched. And one of the greatest ways to stop that desire from conceiving is to find the way of escape before that thought becomes sin. Another way in which sin can be battled in our lives is initiating and starting relationships with fellow Christians to help keep us accountable for the sin in our lives. Another way of phrasing this idea is simply having an accountability partner. Now, when I say accountability partner, there's probably some uneasy feelings that come to your mind, aren't there? You might consider ideas such as vulnerability, anxiety. You might think of confessing your sins to another person, that partner knowing your desires, that person knowing the truth about the sin in your life. And like we mentioned, that can bring with it some uneasy thoughts like anxiety. But I want you to know this morning that the idea of an accountability partner is something we should seek in our walk as a Christian in order to help us fight the sin in our lives. And this is a concept that's taught all over the Bible. Turn over to the book of Galatians in chapter 6. We're going to focus on an idea from Paul to the churches at Galatia. He says this in verse 1. He says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. We often have a tendency to pull verse 2 out of context and say we should bear one another's burdens, which in and of itself is not necessarily wrong. But within the context of the message to Galatians, Paul's describing the idea of restoring a sinner to the spirit of meekness. And by doing that, bearing one another's burdens. The body of Christ is a beautiful thing to be a part of, isn't it? We have fellowship with like-minded people that all have the exact same beliefs, ideology, and goals for their lives. Goals for their children. Goals for their marriages. But I've got news for you this morning. Every single one of us in this body here today have sin issues and fight the battle against temptation and sin day in and day out. And your God knows that. But he also knows how important the body of Christ and our fellow brothers and sisters are in each one of our lives. 
Sometimes sin problems are things that we can get under control on our own. Sometimes we can win that battle, but brethren, the truth is sometimes we can't. Not saying you're not capable of, just sometimes your mind is difficult to overcome. I want you to take a minute and think about the sin problem that you have in your life. You know what it is. Not asking for a show of hands, but just think about the sin problem that you have in your life. Each one of us have something different. Each one of us have personal battles. But each of us have at least one thing that we're dealing with. Now I want you to look around the room this morning. Look at the person on your right and on your left. And I want you to understand something. The person next to you, even if it's your spouse or your child, is dealing with sin in their life as well. We all have the exact same fundamental problem. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners, right? But for some reason, with all the wisdom and knowledge we have in this room, we have brothers and sisters that will sit and listen, that will bear those burdens and help us battle those sins, but we don't reach out. We don't ever talk, and we don't seek wise counsel. For the sake of our souls, folks, we need to seek wise counsel. We need to be restored to a spirit of meekness, as Galatians says, and be a people willing to confess our sins. And we need to keep each other accountable. Think of what Paul said to Timothy earlier, to avoid youthful lust. This is Timothy listening and gaining wisdom to battle the sin in his life from Paul. Accountability partners can be a great blessing in our life. We maintain accountability in everything we do. At work, you're accountable to something or some project. At school, same way, accountable to your partners and projects. And with sin, what a blessing it would be to have an accountability partner to keep us on the right track, to communicate with. But it starts with us reaching out and confessing our sins to one another. James 5 and 16 says, Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Reach out and seek that counsel. Because I promise you there's someone in this room that's dealing with the problem you're dealing with right now. Ask them to pray for you. Ask them to check in with you. Explain to them your faults. It can be a simple conversation. Hey, Brad, I'm, I'm dealing with this sin. Have you ever dealt with that? It could just be generic. Hey, Brad, I'm dealing with sin in general. Do you have any advice you could give me? Is there anything I could work on? The accountability relationships is sometimes what we need in our lives to be able to conquer the sin. Ask that partner to meet with you. This could be experimental. You may have to work on what you need from each other. Sometimes it's Bible studies. Sometimes it's diving into the Word of God together. Sometimes it's weekly check-ins, daily reminders to stay strong, to fight sin. Whatever the case is, be the person who reaches out. And brethren, I want you to think about something for a minute. I want you to think about the last time you confessed your sin to someone. I can tell you it's not a fun conversation for me to tell my wife that I've sinned and I've messed up. It's not something I look forward to. It's not something I enjoy. But folks, it's something that I need. And you know the feelings that I have about maybe what she'll think about me, whatever the, what might happen, whatever the case is, those don't ever happen. She's not judgmental, and I leave feeling better and more equipped 
to fight whatever the sin is in my life. But it comes with the cost of vulnerability. We have to be willing to be vulnerable. Willing to possibly be hurt. Willing to let our guard down and let others know our faults. Willing to receive instruction and willing to sharpen one another. So who should we seek for in a person to keep us accountable? And with that same idea, what should I be doing as an accountability partner? First of all, we need to find someone who exhibits spirituality. In other words, someone who is spiritually minded. And on a side note, it might help to find someone who you might consider to be stronger in their faith than yourself. Someone you deem to be wise. Someone you can receive counsel from with an open mind and an open heart. Secondly, we need to find someone who, who you can trust. Proverbs eleven thirteen says, A talebearer revealeth secrets, but he that is of a faithful spirit concealeth the matter. You need someone who will keep that matter between you and them, as long as it's appropriate. Someone who will help you grow without sharing your issues to the rest of the crowd. The last thing you want is to become vulnerable with that person. Ask for advice and counsel just to find out that person went and told everybody else about the problem you're having. Gossip and malintentions is a hurtful thing in the church. And I can't think of anything that raises the stakes higher and can generate divisions and break relationships within the church than a person gossiping about the sin that someone came to them in private on asking for advice. Find someone who's trustworthy, someone who exhibits humility, and someone who exhibits grace. Thirdly, find someone who speaks the truth in love. And this is probably the hardest thing we find about having an accountability partner. We like the idea of having someone who helps us fight the sin in our lives, but oftentimes we don't like the idea of someone knowing our faults and someone calling us out about our sin. But brethren, sometimes that's what we need. We need someone who's willing to tell us the truth, who's willing to cross that barrier and be the one who pulls us back to Christ. It is essential that we seek those relationships, that we grow together in Christ, and that our sin can be overcome, sometimes with the help of others. Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen tells us that iron sharpens iron, but we have to be willing to do the work, to step out of our comfort zone and seek the help we need to fight the sin in our life. Now I promise if we can do this, if we can become vulnerable and confess our sins, we'll have an easier time fighting the temptations in our life. Lastly, this morning, we need to be aware of some of the consequences of sin in our lives. Both worldly consequences and spiritual and eternal consequences. Let's take a look at the last part of that sin process that James lays out. He says that sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Here's the truth, folks. And we're going to dive into a few of the consequences of sin, but sin in its entirety is ugly. It's hurtful. It's self-seeking. It's destructive. It ruins lives. It ruins relationships. It ruins marriages. It takes jobs. And it takes lives. And if you aren't cognizant or fail to remember what sin brings when it's finished, it can work eternal damnation in your own life. There's a common misconception when it comes to the idea of sin and that we compare our sins to those around us and start thinking, well, maybe I'm not that bad. I mean, come on, Ethan, I don't, I don't kill people. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. You should see what they're doing. Brethren, God views sin as sin. 
to illustrate this idea, let's turn to the book of James in chapter 2 and verse 8. James chapter 2, James says this. He says, If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin, and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. He is guilty of all. On the board in front of you is a chain. And that chain I want to metaphorically represent your relationship with God. And you're climbing that chain to get to God. And each one of those links represents a sin in your life. Maybe one of those sins is lying. One of those sins is greediness. One of them is idolatry. One is murder. You say, well, well, Ethan, I don't, I don't do any of those. But eventually you see envy come up. You see jealousy come up. And you've committed that sin. So that chain breaks. And the bad thing about chain is it doesn't matter how high you've climbed or how hard you've worked. It doesn't matter what the sin is, how small it is or how big it is. That link breaks and that chain falls and you've separated yourself from God. Here's the point. Sin no matter how small it is in our eyes as a human, has the exact same consequence in our spiritual walk and the same eternal consequences. But from a worldly perspective, sins sometimes have different worldly consequences, don't they? For example, you lying to your friend may not net a horrible outcome. In fact, forgiveness might could be found depending on the situation. But if you lie on your taxes and you get in with the IRS, that same exact sin of lying or dishonesty now has a completely different consequence, doesn't it? Murder obviously has a terrible worldly consequence, but in God's eye, in multiple passages, is listed right next to children who are disobedient to parents, right? Why? Because sin, no matter what it is, no matter how small we deem it to be, separates us from God. And not to get on too much of a rant, but we haven't even mentioned sexual sin this morning. That's a whole other level of worldly consequences there. It leaves scars that will haunt you and can ruin marriages. It can break trust. And a whole list of problems that come from sexual sin. The point is the world has this idea of categorizing sin. We organize sin into what we think is morally okay. For example, what the statistics we open with today... And we organize it by what we think is wrong. And I think if you take a look in your own life and do a self-assessment of your own heart, you might find out that you do the exact same thing. Justifying your own sin by the world's standards. Justifying sin and its consequences from a worldly standpoint. I'll fix it one of these days. I've got 50 more years to live, right? You ever thought about that? But brethren, this isn't the mindset that we need to have. Our mindset should be on serving and pleasing God in any capacity that we can. And a huge part of that is fighting the sin and breaking the battle or breaking the process of sin in our lives. We open this morning with the idea that sin starts in the mind. And I want to close with a passage that shows us an outlook that we should have about the sin in our lives. An outlook that if we can obtain will serve us in our battle and will put sin into its proper perspective in our lives. In Psalms, the 51st chapter, David is confronted about a sin by a man named Nathan. Nathan was a prophet of God during this time, and David remind, or Nathan reminds David of his sin and causes him to recognize that his sin might be hid from mankind and he might can escape it in his own heart. 
but it cannot be hid from God. Before we read this, I want you to recognize what we just said there. Nathan confronted David in his sin, bouncing back to having an accountability partner. I want to show you the result of what that partnership can do. David says this in Psalms 51. He says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done evil in thy sight. That thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in my sin my mother conceived me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sin, and blot out mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. This is a psalm and a cry from a sin-stricken man, isn't it? I just imagine David on his knees, crying out with all of his being, begging for mercy about the things he's done. But he says a few things in this passage that we want to point out as we come to a close this morning. David says, I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee alone have I sinned. Brethren, there may not always be a worldly consequence that you can see to your sin. And you might be able to put it off in your own mind and say, I'll fix that later. There may not always be a moment in which you realize that the sin in your life is affecting your walk with Christ. But folks, it is and it has an effect on your soul and an effect on your relationship with Christ. We need to be a people that see sin for what it is. It's an evil against God. We need to view our sin as something that hurts our Heavenly Father. That mindset will put your sin into perspective. You'll slowly start to realize that when I sin, although I'm sinning against myself, against my own body, I'm also sinning against God. And it becomes a whole lot easier to deny your flesh its pleasure. This morning, we've taken an in-depth look at the process of sin in our lives. We've discussed how temptation is when we're drawn away of our own lust and how it starts with our thinking. We talked about how we should find the route of escape and use accountability partners and close with the idea of keeping sin in its proper focus. But this morning, maybe you've realized that you've had a sin problem for a long time. Maybe it's a sin problem that no one else knows about. It's giving you chills just to think about. It's weighing on your heart. And deep down you try to justify it, but you have a guilt and a weight that you're just trying to find some relief from. You don't have to carry that weight alone. We stand ready to lift you up, ready to pray for you and bear those burdens in any way that we can. But maybe this morning you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you haven't been buried with him in baptism. Your battle against sin really hasn't even started yet. If you'd like to start that walk now and be forgiven in totality for the sin in your life, now is the time of salvation. If we can assist you in any way, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.